Alright guys, I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein, and I'm sick. Today is Thursday, April 21st, 2016, and this is episode 23 of Garbage. So there's, again, another show that we don't really have a whole lot of stuff planned, but we have some interesting, um, a couple interesting topics that we're going to ramble on about for a long time, and hopefully you guys will find that interesting. One of them was kind of in response to um, we something we talked about two episodes ago, which was the IWM driver and um, how that all came to be and how it wound up in OpenBSD. And that also kind of ties into um, our very controversial discussion on how the BSDs collaborate and what it looks like for uh, the communities to do that. So we're going to learn a little bit about that tonight. And then last episode, we were talking about um, the NVMe drivers that uh, uh, DLG was working on. And um, we were talking about a bug that he had, and he actually found the bug uh, shortly after we released that podcast. I think the fix was in, um, like, the night before. And so we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, just a little brief thing about that. And then, um, and I think one of the last things that I was uh, considering talking about, someone challenged me, one of the other OpenBSD developers challenged me not to use Google for a week and uh, talk about that. Huh. And specifically, not just like not using Google products, but not Googling or searching for things using Google. Oh, I see. So you could still use Gmail. Yep. You can still use Gmail. And actually, let's start with that because it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, it, we all live in a generation now. So when I was a kid, um, we had encyclopedias, right? And they'd come out years after the information had been researched and whatever, and you'd buy this set of encyclopedias for the year and it'd have a whole bunch of information in it and that's kind of like how you got your information you'd go to the library and now we have just tons of information at our fingertips to the point where we need help um, finding it we need help indexing it and searching it and all that kind of stuff and my background is an engineer so I have certain ways that I attack problems um, from investigation to problem solving techniques and all that stuff. My, my background is engineering. And so my problem solving techniques work the same way. And, uh, one of the things that I've kind of observed lately is that I don't exercise those particular patterns anymore when I go to solve a problem, because the, the thing to do now is go look on the internet. You can find all this stuff instantly at, uh, at the tip of your fingers. And, um, and so this particular guy, Adam Wolk, he, he said, you know, try and do without uh, Google for a week and see what happens, uh, how you approach problems and all this kind of stuff. And what I found was is that I don't really search on Google too often, or I don't search on it as often as I thought I had been. Um, but the half dozen times that I did need to search for something, um, I, I just went to Google and did it anyway. And I kind of was like, whoops. Um, sorry, I did it. <clears throat> um, I don't have a whole lot of like other developers in the office to bounce ideas off of. However, I do have a new boss, and I rattled a couple things off to him, and I talked to a couple people on IRC to get some ideas. And I think that that is a really effective way of doing things. Um, 
but yeah, that was that was kind of my observation is that I wasn't going to Google too much and I wasn't really searching for things um, like how do I solve this problem on Google. I was reading the docs for Postgres and I was reading the docs for Go. That's where I spent most of my time this week. So maybe it was just, you know, the work that I was working on. But that's what I saw. And of the half dozen or so things that I did search for on Google, there was probably a couple of those that I could have done myself. I, I find that I use Google as a calculator a lot. <laughs> and so the one thing I was doing is I was punching in numbers and I didn't even think about it. Like my browser is now my calculator. I just, you know, put in, you know, 6,500 divided by 33. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have some number out of it. Huh. I use a, a thing called Alfred on Mac OS. And how does that work? <laughs> when you hit, uh, command space it just brings up a like a prompt uh-huh and you can uh most of the time i just use it to launch stuff so like if you just type f uh it brings up the applications that have f in them and then as you launch them from it it learns like what f usually means and it brings it to the top but you can do like def space and then a word and then mm -hmm. it'll look it up and tell you the definition but if you just start typing numbers and do like dividers plus or whatever it turns into a calculator <laughs> so similar thing Pretty and cool. uh i never remember my google history like after i close my browser it deletes everything and i'm never logged into google so it doesn't remember anything mm -hmm. but i was just thinking that like sometimes it would be useful to remember my google history mm -hmm. just for like offline use maybe i guess the alternative is is that you just become a subject matter expert on those types of things. Um, and I was, you know, um, I was discussing this with another person at work and, you know, what you do before is you would write a bunch of documentation that says, here's the specification that we're going to follow. And then you'd give that to an engineer and they would like read it and implement it. Right. And we don't have that anymore because you don't have a CSS implementation handbook with you at your desk. Do you? No. And I mean, it's just sitting online, like that's where it is. So I guess that stuff has kind of changed a little bit. Yeah, I don't, uh, like the stuff on my website, jcs.org, um, I put a lot of stuff on there that has no relevance to anybody else, mm -hmm. but it's just for me to remember stuff. And then, cause I'm really bad with dates, so I have to frequently like look stuff up if I want to, uh, you know, if I need to know the date of something. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a lot easier to do that than uh, try and remember all these things in my head so I can store other stuff in my head, I guess. Yeah. And maybe uh, it's the same way with other people, so they just look stuff up all the time instead of um, trying to remember things. Yeah, I know for me, like, I have trouble recalling things. I've done just so much stuff with technology, it's, it's stupid. And... Um, so if I write something down or publish something somewhere, um, it helps to be able to remember it later on, but it's not like a sure thing that it's going to be, uh, recalled later on. Cause I've, I've mentioned this before, but I've written articles and blog posts about how to do something. And then I'm like, man, how does this work? And then I go do a search and I find my own blog post and I don't remember that I wrote it. So anyway, yeah, maybe that's how people's minds work. I like, um, I like the engineering principles. We aren't going to get into that, but uh, it was an interesting, fun uh, challenge, and I appreciate Adam asking me to do that, and I uh, and I hope that it's healthy. I 
I actually on a on an unrelated um, note, there was a someone and I, I was talking to um, about someone about um, how these um, young students who want to be um, software developers or software engineers or whatever they get into these schools and the idea is that they need to teach them to be creative and they're because the problem now is is we have all these people who have all these technical skills you know they can write c sharp and all this other kind of crazy stuff and um but what they lack is they lack creativity they lack how to solve a problem they lack how to investigate and research and and troubleshoot and so this highly technical specialized school all they sit there and do all day is creativity and problem solving and whatever and it has nothing to do with technology and i think that's fantastic (laughs) and i don't remember what the name of the school is either i just thought it was great all right so last show you were talking about the nvme driver that uh, dlg was working on that is correct and I guess it's working now. Yeah, you you said that there was um, uh, a particular drive on AMD 64 that was having an issue, and uh, and we kind of cautioned people to look out for that drive, and it turned out not to be the drive at all. Um, I'm going to read you the commit message here. Um, It says, allocate an array of entries, not pointers uh, for the queues, and apparently there was a, a memory corruption happening um, on the Samsung SM951 on a Dell 2950. And uh, the commit message says, uh, Hilariously, I picked values which masked this problem on Spark 64. I randomly picked 128 as the number of entries on the queues, and DMA mem Alex got rounded up to page size. On AMD 64 and Spark 64, this meant I was asking for 128 times 8, the size of the pointer, or 1024 bytes which got rounded up to 4096 and 8192 on each architecture respectively. 128 times 64 uh, was the size of the submission queue entry is um, 8192. So it worked fine on Spark 64, but only by chance because Spark 64 uh, wound up with 8192. But randomly, it would blow up on AMD 64. So anyway... Um, Congratulations to DLG for getting his bug fixed, and it was kind of a, a funny thing. And he he said it's a little embarrassing, but no, I don't think it's embarrassing. Uh, when you do stuff like this, it's easy to have uh, stuff like that happen. I think someone's trying to break into your house. Yeah, my dog wants back in. Okay, so tonight we have the cats in the podcast, and now the dog in the podcast. Um, I guess it's also a good uh, a good example of why it's. Uh why OpenBSD is developed on multiple platforms, even ones that uh, may not be that popular anymore. Um, Because when you test things on different architectures, uh, you find bugs like this. Yeah. I actually really like Spark 64. I wish it was popular, and I wish you could go out and buy the hardware like you can the AMD 64 hardware. Yeah. Just doesn't, uh, it's not very useful sometimes. All right, so the next thing that we kind of have tonight, and this was, um, this is in response to both people asking how the projects collaborate and how um, work is shared through the projects, and we were kind of touching on it. This is not um, the only way that things happen. This just happens to be how this particular thing 
works. This is an IWM driver, which is a wireless driver. And um, Stefan Sperling took the time to write this up and send it in to us. So I'm going to try not to read it, but I'm probably going to end up reading most of this. There's a company in Germany called uh, Genua, and they have um, a kind of a their own version of OpenBSD with some tweaks and changes and stuff. And they have products that they, um, you know, run this OpenBSD, this Genua version of OpenBSD on it. So anyway, um, sometime back in 2014, they contracted um, Anti Canty, I guess is the guy's name, um, to write this driver for this particular wireless card. And um, I guess he, he started with the workings from IWN, um, which was a dual license uh, piece of code. It was GPL and BSD licensed. And um, th I guess the Linux driver too, the IWL, Wi-Fi, and MWM, or MVM. Um, and this was somewhere around OpenBSD 5.4, which is what Genua was using at the particular time. And um, I guess Anti is the, the rump kernel guy, and he was the one who initially developed the driver um, for NetBSD rump kernel and then ported the results from that to OpenBSD 5.4 um, once he had everything working on rump. So um, all this happened... Okay, it says this project was internal to Genua, but some people found out that um, th this work was happening and some of the OpenBSD developers found out and... Um, I guess Peter Hessler kind of like prodded um, someone who works at Genua Bloom. He's also another OpenBSD developer, and he said, "Hey, I, I heard that um, you know you guys have this driver for this wireless card, and you know I'd like to get my hands on it. We'd like to get our hands on it and see you know what we can do with it." Um, and that code from Genua had um, parts of it licensed uh, with like copyright Genua, all rights reserved. And um, I guess Stefan Sperling went back to them and asked them to relicense that so that they could use um, the driver in OpenBSD. And actually, Genua complied with that and uh, changed the license. So um, I guess it never hurts to ask. That's actually really cool stuff. Um, and then Stefan Sperling and Peter Hessler uh, were staying together, I guess, for the for the short while. And... Uh, um, Peter had this X240 laptop, and the wireless card in there was the, um, I think it was like, uh, or yeah, Intel 7260, and it didn't work, obviously, and I guess Peter was kind of like harassing Stefan Sperling to get this thing ported so he could, or help him port it so they could get the wireless working in there. Um, and then, so I guess what Stefan did is he was porting Genua's code from the 5.4 version of OpenBSD that Genua used to OpenBSD current. And having done a similar such operation on ARM stuff, there's a bit of a jump. Um, but all that work turned into the IWM driver that we know today. Um, I guess it says Anti ended up merging the OpenBSD 5.7 driver into NetBSD. Um, and Stefan is guessing here that um, 
He couldn't release the code he'd written while under the contract, and he can now because it obviously had been relicensed and all that other kind of stuff. Um, so I guess that's the explanation here why all of this code made this big round trip <laughs> from a private NetBSD source tree to an OpenBSD 5.4 and then to OpenBSD 5.7 and then back into the official NetBSD CVS tree. Um, and then it says later on here that uh, IWM has now been ported from OpenBSD to FreeBSD and to Dragonfly, Dragonfly BSD. Um, after all this happened, um, so IWM works, but in OpenBSD um, at the time, we didn't have support for um, wireless 11N. I think it was um, a pretty significant undertaking that had to happen both in the driver layer and in the infrastructure for our wireless networking stuff. So um, I was actually talking with Stefan Sperling, or he was bouncing ideas off me uh, at one of the hackathons that talked about that. And I guess um, Genua contracted him to work on the 11N support um, in IWM. And he he just wants to make clear here, he, he wasn't working on their products. He works on OpenBSD in the community, and he can afford to spend his time working on this other kind of stuff thanks to certain types of funding. So uh, anyway, he negotiated some contract terms with them so that the code for uh, 11N support um, would be allowed under an acceptable license. Um, he talks a little bit about the licensing terms in here uh, and how like they, you know, they negotiated those licensing terms. Um, I, I think in what he's saying here in this particular part of the write-up is that um, he wanted to negotiate these licensing terms differently because it's the reason that uh, Anti couldn't distribute the code that he did for Genua back in OpenBSD 5.4 and the uh, NetBSD rump version. So anyway, um, and it says, last month Genua approached me about work on IWM 8260 support. Um, I guess they have some new laptops that they're going to be releasing. And, um, you know, obviously OpenBSD developers are going to be getting new laptops which have a similar wireless chip in them or the same wireless chip in them. So, um, you know, it's it's a, a benefit to both their company and to OpenBSD Current. Um, and he's talking about having that stuff done uh, a little while later this month if everything goes well. So anyway, um, really a huge thank you to Stefan Sperling for taking the time to write all that stuff up. I think it's really interesting to hear, um, you know, how that driver development happened in this particular case, how the projects wind up collaborating and the amount of effort that goes into reintegrating a properly licensed driver when, you know, you don't negotiate those terms up front. And um, anyway, he he took the time to make all this information available to us. And there's a couple links that we can post in the show notes here um, that just talk about, um, you know, the, the history here. This is our best attempt at um, consolidating this data so that you guys know kind of what happened and you can read it all in one place. So I thought that was kind of cool and I appreciate him writing that up. Yeah. Um, so a few things. The uh, Genua sells a laptop made by Fujitsu. Yep. 
that apparently has some sort of like hardware. Um, I don't know if it's virtualization or what, but it'll. It's um, from the web page on Genoa's website. It says it's L4 separation system creates strictly isolated components. Mail and office applications run on their own operating system in one component. In another, the corporate management data can be processed. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of weird. I don't know what uh, kind of virtualization it's actually using. But it's uh, neat that they sell this, that I'm assuming runs OpenBSD, which is why they needed the driver for the uh, Intel wireless card inside of it. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say that um, when projects like these come up that developers are working on, uh, as a user and other developer, I guess, um, I think it would be interesting to know this while it's happening. Because I think if like the community knew that somebody was uh, under a contract to um, create a driver um, that would end up being uh, open sourced, I guess, um, maybe some other users might want to contribute funding yeah. um, and sort of like a fundraising kind of thing. Because it's, I don't know, it feels different than like if a developer is just saying, uh, hey, I'm working on this one particular thing when I get around to it um, because all the funding in the world isn't going to like um, force them to work on it, I guess. Yeah. But if they're already like under a contract where a company or whatever is actually paying them to finish this driver by this date um, with like a, a set amount of money every month, um, so they're like definitely going to work on it. Um, I don't know. It just seems like if they um, kind of put out word about it, it might bring them even more money. I don't know. Yeah. I, I often wonder how much, you know, something like a wireless driver versus a network driver um, would cost to get a driver built. I would guess it'd be, you know, $10,000, $15,000 for something like that. If you, you know, look at the amount of time that goes into something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's low. I don't know. But I could easily see it being, you know, a, it, it's a significant amount of time and I could see it, you know, costing a chunk of money. So, um, if the community, I, I think it would be good for the community to see that number because, you know, you hear people saying like, well, I'm not going to pay, you know, $65 for an OpenBSD release. But when you look at, uh, the plethora of network drivers and, disk subsystems and scheduling and all this other stuff that goes into an operating system uh, and looked at the costs associated with it, um, you'd realize how very, very, very uh, slim the margins are in, in these particular economies of scale. And, um, and I think it would also probably help, too, to bring new hardware to market faster. It's one thing to buy a developer some hardware, and maybe they get stuck, maybe there's other roadblocks, but, you know, you and I have talked about this. We have full-time jobs and commitments that we have. We have families. Um, and so if, if I'm going to spend 40 hours a week on something, uh, like an open source project, that really has to happen instead of my, you know, daily job. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, you, you can't do it in two or three hours a night across the course of six months that has to be, you know, set apart to do this kind of thing. And I think, um, 
you know, when we talk about writing drivers and stuff, I think the folks that do that are often in, in a different type of situation than what you or I would be, because it's just a tremendous amount of work and time to be put into something like that, that just isn't practical if that isn't your day job or can't be carved out of your day job to do. Yeah. It's, uh, it reminds me of like Theo's situation mm-hmm. where he is basically paid to work on OpenBST every day. Um, and he is paid by the sales of the CD-ROMs, or mm-hmm. I guess they're DVDs now. Um, are they? I don't even know. I haven't bought one in a while. But um, so that's like, because all that money doesn't go to the OpenBSD Foundation. Like Theo makes those CDs and handles the like um, pressing of them and um, the, distribu- the distribution through um, some resellers and stuff. But most of that money goes to Theo, um, which basically pays him a salary to, you know, sit at home and work on OpenBSD every day and be there on ICB to yell at us when we break the tree and to um, come up with things like Pledge and all that. And so now that the the CDs or DVDs are not selling as much as they used to because people don't uh, need them, um, that source of funding is kind of drying up. Yeah. And it's and that's a good point you brought up. Like where the money goes, OpenBSD Foundation and CD sales are, are two different things. Mm-hmm. Which is why before the foundation was created, um, the donation, uh, I think the donation page on the OpenBSD website still says make checks out to Theo and not to OpenBSD because it was basically just um, going to Theo and then he would allocate that money to you know, paying his electricity bill or his, uh, um, you know, buying equipment or buying equipment and then selling it or shipping it to another developer to work on or, you know, stuff like that. But now that there's like a formal foundation, um, that money is handled by another group of people mm-hmm. to, uh, to cover those costs and stuff like that. Yeah. And speaking of the OBSC foundation, it looks like we're right around uh, $21,000 into our campaign this year. And the goal is set right now at $250,000. So, um, what, this is April already. So, <clears throat> a quarter of the way through the year. So, we really need to see donations coming in. Um, corporate sponsors who can write big checks. Um, we had some last year from this uh tech company out in uh silicon valley microsoft (laughs) so anyway um i'm being silly but uh make some donations to the to the foundation too i think that's really important i'm not sure um you know what the um what the difference is between last year and this year but um if memory serves me correctly, there was a pretty hefty charge put out to the community on the mailing list that said basically the project can't continue and can't sustain any longer unless we get a lot of money in a hurry. And I don't want to see the project be in that situation again, and I don't want to see um, money get in the way of um, the project doing what it does really, really well. So um, if you work for a company who can write a check have them do it. Nothing's too small. Uh, the bigger, the better, obviously. Um, but we need to, we need to never have to think about or worry about that type of funding again. Yeah. 
When is the next hackathon? The general one? General one is in when? It is in August? Okay. Maybe? And that's in Cambridge? Yep, I think so. Yeah, so that money goes to uh, stuff like that to pay for the hotels and all the accommodations for uh, all the developers that fly in on their own dollar Mm -hmm. um, to uh, work on stuff, which I don't think I will be attending. Yeah, I know. It's looking less and less likely that I'm going to make it out there as well. Yeah, those uh, flights are pretty expensive. Yeah. Well, I guess that's all the OpenBSD stuff that we had. Yeah. There was a lot of OpenBSD stuff, though. Yeah, it was kind of neat, too. I, I like talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I didn't realize that... I knew like that Stefan was working on the uh, 802.11n stuff, obviously, but I didn't realize that um, Genua had been contracting him to do that and um, paying him directly. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. So what else we got? That's all I really had to talk about, I think. Hmm. I guess we're the OpenBSD show tonight. Yeah. I am uh, back from Boston and working on a uh, pushover thing I've been working on the past couple days. The uh, like the daemon that runs that sends out all of the messages that it has queued up to mm-hmm. uh, Apple and Google servers. Um, I ran into a... It used to be just single-threaded. Like There was one uh, version that talked to Apple servers and then another daemon that run that or that ran that uh, pulled all the Android messages and sent them out to Google. And um, Apple's servers use like this proprietary binary interface where okay. you just throw data at it forever, and then if there's an error in the data, it just closes the connection. And then you have to like open a connection to their feedback server, and then you get an error, and then you're supposed to like do something with it and then reopen the initial connection and keep resu- like resume sending data. It's a very <laughs> terrible interface. So their new server supports um, HTTP2, so you can like um, throw data at it and then um, like asynchronously get responses about messages that had errors instead of it killing the connection. But I haven't updated to that yet. So anyway, so um, the version that the runs for Google stuff just uses a regular HTTP connection over um, or HTTPS connection. Mm-hmm. And um, so you send it like a full post request for every message. And then obviously you can use like Keep Alive to, to maintain a persistent connection. But um, I think it was like maybe a year and a half ago, um, their server started flaking out and it would take like multiple seconds to send one notification. And the rate that Pushover has to send them um, was obviously like slowing it down enough that it was starting to, that my queue was starting to back up. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, Obviously, one single thread is not going to handle this, so I had to make a multi-threaded version that would start um, that would open like four connections to the to Google server at once, and then start um, sending out messages to it. And so now I'm updating. Um, I'm basically writing a new version that's taking the Apple code and the Google code and merging it all back into one daemon, so that it can use a lot of um, shared code and do like two Apple connections at once and like six Google connections all at the same time. So I'm basically writing this new daemon and it's um, a whole bunch of Ruby code. That's cool stuff. It would seem like the kind of project that I want to, to write in Go because Go is good at that kind of stuff. Yep. 
but there's a ton of Ruby code that I need to to um, use that talks to um, that is basically like my Rails code for the website and the API. That's all Ruby and Rails and like Active Record stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have all this code that I still need to call. So I am continuing to do it in Ruby. So it's basically like those two Apple threads, um, the six Google threads, and then there's like one master control thread that maintains the database connection. So it like the master thread queues up messages in like batches, and then each thread asks the master thread for the next message to deal with. And so they all keep kind of like keep calling back and then they push the results back to the master because basically all the worker threads can't touch the database or I don't want them to. Right. Um, So, yeah. So kind of coordinating that stuff is um, not fun, but it's not too terrible. Yeah. I I come, I would be curious to see how you do that in Ruby. Um, It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because we had a discussion today about, um, like that synchronization channel or loop in Go and having a bunch of Go routines go off and do very similar work. Like instead of like you're saying posting information, we actually go out and pull information and some of them can take, you know, several seconds and some of them take a a split second. Mm -hmm. So we have like the synchronization block, uh, that handles like a timeout or, you know, a response comes back and then it kind of does like, in our case, we're, since we're pulling data, it, um, you know, pulls out duplicates and makes sure that the responses are valid and all this kind of stuff. So, um, I feel spoiled <laughs> doing it in Go because I've written other stuff like that in Java and, uh, I've cleared it from my memory. It was so painful that I don't even want to think about it again. And this <laughs> is just quite frankly, like a lot of fun. I feel like you're just writing code to solve the problem and I enjoy it. So. Yeah, the Ruby code isn't too bad. Um, it's, you know, there's like a built-in thread module in Ruby. Um, you just spin up the threads and then just keep a mutex around like the queue of messages. Mm-hmm. Um, so each thread does its own thing. And then when it's done, it um, grabs the mutex, pushes the result to an array, and then um, asks for a new message from the um, message queue. Yeah. So there's not really too much complicated like back and forth going on. Um, there's just that small mutex handling around um, the message queue and the results queue. It's more like um, trying to add back all the code that the separate code that was in the Apple version and the Google version um, because their interfaces are so different. And like you know, in the Google version, you just do a regular post and then you get it or you read the regular reply and if there's an error you can deal with it at that time but with the apple version like you have to throw a whole bunch of messages at it and then if one of them has an error or if like the connection dies you have to assume that it was because of an error and then check and you open a new connection to the feedback server read the response try and figure out which message you sent that was bad and then go back in that like your go back in your history and say like every message after that point I thought that I sent I actually didn't send because the connection already closed by that time because right. you're writing so fast so then it has to like back up in time and then push those messages back to its own queue and resend them and it's it's a mess but yeah <laughs> see this is like what 
$2 application or something like that on $5, $5 application and an Android app. And, and the amount of complexity in there is, is just crazy. Yeah. Well, I was looking at like updating to the new HTTP two interface, which would be nice to do at the same time. Yeah. But the way that it's like asynchronous, um, the way that, or at least the HTTP two libraries seem like they're implemented. Um, I don't understand really how I would, how the like timing works. Um, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like you send a message to it, but then you're allowed to send another message while still waiting for the original reply. Mm -hmm. But like, how do you wait for that reply and how long do you wait? Or do you like keep spent sending messages and then like the library is supposed to call back and say like, now I have data waiting for you. So it's kind of the same situation where um, I would keep throwing messages at it and then later get a reply and then find out that that message I sent 10 messages ago was problematic and now I need to do something with it when I thought that I was already done with it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's really going to make it any faster or easier. Technology is a grand thing. Mm-hmm. Our our steps forward. Remember, HTTP two will solve all your problems, just like XML will solve all your problems, just like JSON will solve all your problems. Yeah. Key value pairs are inefficient. We have hash maps now, and all this other stuff. So, the other thing I was looking at is uh, migrating, because I'm using MariaDB right now on uh-huh. both servers. I have two servers um, that are in a master-master situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so they both synchronize, and then some of the stuff runs on one server and some of it runs on the other. Mm-hmm. But if one of them has a problem, I just update DNS and point everything to the the one that's uh, running properly. So like the other day, uh, when I got back from Boston, um, I noticed that in um, the like daily email from OpenBSD, um, I have in like daily.local that it runs BioCTL soft rate zero mm-hmm. to just show the status of the rate array. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that it was degraded. So I tried to kick off a rebuild and it says that it couldn't even read the second disk that's in the raid one. So it, uh, it couldn't even find that second disk. So I had to basically take that machine offline and figure out what was wrong with it. So I uh, migrated everything to the other server and it's kind of neat to watch the like traffic graphs. Yeah. You'll see like one go way down and then the other one simultaneously goes way up as it starts taking the load um, over the next like hour for yeah. while DNS propagates. But anyway, so like I took that machine offline and then I had to like contact the uh, hosting provider and say that my machine has a failed disk. So they basically just went in and like replugged it in. <laughs> and I <laughs> guess that worked. I've never heard of like an SSD. Um, like needing to be reseeded, but it did and it it works fine now. So they plugged it back in and then it booted and I just uh, ran bioctl-r, I think it is, to kick off a rebuild, and it just copies everything to the to the uh, previously bad disk. Yeah, uh, which is pretty cool that all that stuff magically works. Yeah, those disk subsystems are awesome and complex, and I hate to think about them. Yeah. So anyway, so once the stuff came back online, um, I had to restart the MySQL replication to Mm -hmm. make the failed node um, catch up to the one that's running. Yeah. And so it did all that. And then it, uh, the way that 
MySQL replication uh, works or doesn't work actually is like when it encounters one error, it just stops all replication, which I guess is the only thing it can really do. But then you have to go in and manually fix the error and then start replication again. So like in my case, it tried to insert a record into a table that it had that had come through like the replication channel, but um, that new row that it inserted violated a, a key constraint on that table. So obviously the tables were out of sync on both of the servers. Mm-hmm. So I fixed that error and started thinking like about how to properly fix that in the future because I don't want to have to manually fix these errors all the time. So I started looking at Galera. There's like this add-on for older versions of MySQL, and now it's actually um, built into newer versions of MariaDB called Galera Cluster, mm-hmm. and it's like a high-availability um, real-time clustering dealy. So um, instead of like replicating one server to another, they're like online together and talking to each other, so that when one wants to run a, a transaction, it um, has to verify it with the cluster so that there's no um, replication lag between them. So I guess that would fix my problem because then I wouldn't have like these key constraints and tables getting out of sync. But because the servers are in like geographically different locations, I don't know what kind of latency that would add because if one machine has to ask the other machine for every single transaction, um, that's probably going to be too slow. Yeah. And then the other problem is that since I only have two servers, um, it says that you should run with a minimum of three yeah. because if the two of them disconnect, then you have that split brain situation where they both think they're the master. Yep. And then when they both come back online and talk to each other, then they would have like, um, you know, mismatched data. Yep. You wind, I think you wind up with almost the same situation you have now. Yeah. So, um, I was looking at that for a while and reading all the documentation and, um, I basically decided that it wasn't worth the headache to, uh, try and set all that up because, uh, the version of MariaDB that's in the OpenBSD ports tree is like 10.1, I think. Mm-hmm. Or, or no, it's yeah, ten point ten point zero, and the Galera stuff is now built into MariaDB ten point one. So I don't know what other kind of massive changes are in there between ten point zero and ten point one, but I didn't really feel like trying to update our port. So uh, I guess I'll wait for Brad to do that. Yeah. So yeah, so now I'm just back to uh, MariaDB, regular old MariaDB doing. Um, master master replication over SSH. Yeah, I think that's probably a very simple, clean, functioning setup. Yep. I guess that's all I've been working on. Sounds like a lot, though. Yeah. Kind of surprised, though, like, um, with one node down, so it's handling everything on one node by itself, which is the API, which is, you know, every user when they open the app it has to synchronize its messages with the server to download new ones and stuff um any new users or devices uh being registered have to hit that api and then obviously like the message sending api that is hit like i don't know dozens of times per second um by every application out there that's sending through pushover yeah so it's all that api stuff it's the static or you know the like ruby on rails website um which has like all the user management stuff and 
creating applications and looking at your graphs and all that kind of stuff. And um, there's the like desktop client, which is in a browser. It's a browser-based one, so that means that um, it has to serve that too. And then that's that backend is a WebSocket back to the server. It's the uh, Ruby daemon that does the WebSocket stuff, okay. and then notifies uh, all those desktop clients. And then all of the message sending daemons that talk to Apple and Google, all of the um, callbacks for like pushover has this feature where you can send a message with a priority of two. And then when the notification goes to the user's phone, they have to open the app and click on a button to acknowledge it. And if they don't within like 30 seconds or whatever timeout you specify, um, my server keeps sending you notifications over and over again. So it's basically like for people that are, you know, on call or something and you're sleeping and you don't hear the first notification, you can make it retry for like 30 minutes or whatever, you know, every 30 seconds or something until you actually acknowledge it. And then as soon as you acknowledge it, it calls back to the server and then the server can actually call back to your own web server running somewhere. I know a bunch of these companies that have integrated it with their, um, their like DevOps team or, or whatever. So when an issue happens, they can make sure that the person on call has actually acknowledged it. And then if they don't acknowledge it within a certain time frame, it cancels the notification with pushover and then escalates it and sends a notification to another user or something like that. Nice. So anyway, so there's a daemon on my end that has to do all those callbacks to, you know, random web servers everywhere and then some backend stuff that runs from cron and all that kind of stuff. So it's like a lot of stuff to run on one server, right? Yeah. But uh, OpenBSD handles it just swimmingly. And I know that if I had to put my infrastructure in the cloud, I'm making air quotes right now with cloud. Um, <laughs> on somebody else's computer? Right. The cloud is just somebody else's computer. That like, There's no way I would get that performance. So I'd have to have like, you know, 100 dynos or virtual machines or whatever you want to call them um, that... I would have to like split all this stuff up on. And then once you have that many nodes, like the management of all that becomes like so crazy. Um, so yeah, it's kind of neat what is possible on just a single server. Yeah. And I basically only have two just for redundancy and to have it um, in a geographically separated um, part. Like one server is in a different part of the country than another. So that if, um, some weird routing or network issue happens, I can just flop over to the other one through DNS. So yeah, so OpenBSD, so anybody that says that OpenBSD is slow um, isn't using it right. No, definitely not. We have uh, another production uh, Postgres machine running at work, and it's fast. <laughs> um, I started to like do a bunch of, uh, I don't know what the word is, audits or metrics or whatever, dumping them in the database at, um, like every API call goes in the database. Um, every log from every particular process that we run goes to the database. So I'm kind of hammering the database a lot now and, uh, it, it already had plenty to do, but, uh, OMBSD is a database server. I'm really impressed with it. (laughs) I'm really, really pleased with, um, you know, storing my data there. It's so easy to set up. It performs, I and, and so for comparison, I've run OpenBSD or I've run uh, Postgres on uh, OpenSolaris and Open Indiana with ZFS and all this other kind of nonsense inside zones, outside zones, all this other stuff. 
What is what is Open Indiana? Uh, it's the um, fork of the Open Solaris thing after uh, Oracle took over Sun. Oh, what is the other one? Illumos. Yeah. What's the difference between them? Uh, there is a a lot of people who try and explain it to me, but I think essentially like. Um, it's just where all the changes come from. I think they start in Illumos and then they wind up going back to open Indiana. That's weird. I've never actually heard of that. Yeah. Hopefully nobody from those projects works or like listens to our podcast. Cause I don't want to hear about how wrong I am, but it's essentially <laughs> like Illumos is the Linux is to, um, open Solaris and open Indiana as Linux is to Ubuntu and CentOS and whatever else. Okay. It's it's really just a distribution thing, I think. Mm. But anyway, I've run them on those, and I've run some really high-performance stuff, and, like, you know, the amount of time and effort it takes to set that up is is uh, is large. I mean, um, the tuning pr- perspective is... I mean, you're going to spend some time doing it, but you can get some great results. And there have been a couple installations that I've done that I've needed to have that. Um, but if you want to get, like really good performance with almost no time investment an open bsd install package add postgresql server um edit a couple of things in your configuration file uh u limits need a couple tweaks and you can run you know a couple hundred connections into this database and it will fly and it works really really well and so that's what we're doing at work and uh, really happy with the results and I think when the time comes that we need it to be super performant, um, you know, we'll be able to make it work better on OpenBSD just by tuning some stuff. I mean, that's mostly just out of the box, flipping a couple flags, editing mm-hmm. a couple things in the config, and then you're done. I think the biggest uh, speed um, that I've gained with this stuff is just uh, running these servers with SSDs in them. Yeah. Um, so I'm using it's there's two SSDs. And then it's, um, for whatever reason, they have like a hardware RAID controller that I don't want to use, but I, it won't pass the drives through normally. So you have to do like, you have to create a RAID array for each drive so that in OpenBSD, you see them as like two RAID arrays. Oh, nice. But it's just a, each drive. And then I use SoftRAID to make an actual RAID array out of those two drives. So it's possibly even slower than it needs to be, but um, I don't really have uh, too much control over the uh, hardware specs for the machine. But yeah, so it's you know a soft software RAID mirroring setup on two SSDs, and the thing just flies. Like I never have any um, slowdowns related to uh, the disk. Nice. And um, I don't know. I think they're Intel SSDs. I don't know which which model they are, but um, they've been doing many, many transactions per second for years, and I've only had one of them fail. And as far as, like, the uh, trim trim support yep. that OpenBSD doesn't have, like, I don't care if there's a problem with it I've never noticed. So, And I think the, these servers are doing way more disk activity than a laptop or something, so... Um, I don't even really know what trim support is really going to, uh, to bring, Yeah, but it seems like a lot of people ask about that on OpenBSD. I, I have read recently that a lot of the controllers on the, um, SSD now handle trim, 
um, so the operating system doesn't have to. And that kind of makes sense because um, the firmware is responsible for, you know, oh, this particular block or sector or whatever you want to call it is dead um, market. And, um, and it, it knows, like, when the operating system says, hey, delete this particular block, it should be able to later on go back and say, okay, zero it out so it's ready to go later on. And I guess that's been happening on the newer stuff. So um, maybe it was kind of a good thing that OpenBSD didn't go too crazy, like, you know, oh, we need a thread to wake up and start doing, sending other commands to, you know, free up your deleted blocks on your disk on your solid state drive or whatever so <laughs> well like but doesn't the operating system have to do it because the controller doesn't know when a block isn't being used because the operating system has to know the file system to know when a block is like from a deleted file well i think i think that's so my understanding is that when you um the operating system would tell the solid state drive delete this file and so uh, obviously, it knows which um, which blocks are associated with that file, right? So the operating system says, hey, these should be blanked out or whatever, or mm-hmm. deleted or whatever. So um, the only difference now is that trim would go back in and it would write zeros over those blocks so that it doesn't have, have to happen the next time you go to write to them. So... Um, as far uh, as I know, the firmware in the um, SSD could do that because the operating system has already said, hey, delete this file or whatever. Hmm. But like, if you're using full disk encryption, then it wouldn't matter anyway, right? Because no. technically none of the blocks on the, the disk would actually be blank um, because with if you're encrypting the drive, the whole drive properly, those would all be random stuff on the physical drive anyway. So, like on a laptop with full disk encryption, what I mean, what does trim even get you? I don't know. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think anything. All right, because like on my Mac, it has. I mean, Mac OS has trim support for the SSDs, but I'm using full disk encryption, so I don't know. I don't know. But the point is, uh, whatever benefit it's supposed to be giving me, I don't need it. I don't really care about it. Yeah, you don't have to think about it. Yeah. I think we filled up an hour. <laughs> yeah, talking about mostly nothing. Yeah. All the rubbish and technology. Uh, well, that's it for this episode. If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM and through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And you can also find me on Google+. I am on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. That's all.